0: Our After they passed through
1: Amphipolis and so, Apollonia, God, they came us, to Thessalonica, to trust where you, there was a Jewish
0: synagogue. At, week, As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on and three, three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the, kind of the Scriptures, explaining and, and proving to, that it was necessary for the Messiah to
1: suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. This is the reading of the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Ryan. Let's just uh, take a moment to pray as we get started, if you just want to take a Deep breath I know we all come in here with lots of lots of stuff cooking uh, internally and so let's take a moment to ask God to speak to us and then I'll pray for us Father, we ask now that you would speak to us. We know that you are speaking. Help us to have ears to hear, hearts that are open, bodies, souls open to your truth. Help us to recover a passion for your good news, uh, for sharing that, for experiencing that, entering into this joyful work that you've called us to as your disciples. Help us to be as those disciples were ambassadors who truly turn the world upside down. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna continue our uh, series that are kind of a, this section in Acts that we started last week. So I'm gonna recap a little bit of last week because most of you were at the race uh, and not here. So last week, we, uh, this, next sl- this slide here, uh, Paul starts his second missionary journey. And if you notice up and to the left there, um, is where Paul's at in Philippi, and, uh, and he has this vision in Troas uh, where God essentially tells him, go preach the gospel of Macedonia. And so Paul goes to some of these major urban centers we're going to look at over the next few weeks, Philippi, last week, Thessalonica, Berea, down to Athens, uh, and then to Ephesus over on the east or the west coast of Asia there, the province of Asia. And so uh, kind of the, the big thing that we're looking at here at the end of, uh, in this vision, God says. To Paul, I want you to, uh, you Angelica, I want you to good news all of these regions here. And so we're going to be looking at how the gospel is proclaimed and shared in the major urban centers of the Roman Empire. And and kind of what's been traditionally called um, evangelism, right? Or proclaiming the good news or preaching the gospel. Uh, It's all the same word. It literally is good newsing, Uh, in the original Greek. And so as we do that, I want to say what I said last week, because I know that immediately some of us start to have weird, tingly feelings in our body. When we talk about evangelism, we talk about proclamation sharing the gospel. We have maybe some baggage because we look out at the world, uh, especially the American church, and there's been so much damage that's been done in the name of Jesus. And maybe we have mixed feelings about sharing our faith. And for some of us, I think it's just like, I'm just going to put my head down and be a good person and hope that somebody will ask me uh, why I'm a good person, right? But sharing the gospel can just be weird for some of us. And, and so I want to remind you of the words of the novelist and pastor of a generation ago, Frederick Buechner. Here's what he says about, uh, about the good news. He says, I believe that no matter how tedious, unimaginative, banal, unconvincing, and seemingly irrelevant the church's proclamation of the mystery of a loving God often is, or how cheapened, flamboyant, phony, if you happen to watch some of the religious vaudeville available on American TV, or we could say social media because he's writing decades ago, uh, that mystery is as much a part of reality as the air that we breathe. So regardless of how it's been done, it's still the good news, and we still are invited to share it with other people so that they might find the life that we've found in Jesus. And so what we wanna do over the next few months is look at these narratives, look at how the gospel is proclaimed in these urban cities which have some parallels to our own in some ways are very different. And we wanna look at how the gospel begins to turn the Roman Empire upside down, which is what we see here in this passage. And we wanna look at some of the themes, some of the patterns through the rest of the book of Acts. And then in August, we're going to zoom out and we're going to look at Jesus and look at all of the disciples and how they preach the gospel in the, in the, in the biographies of Jesus and look at what we've learned here. And we're going to do a whole formation series on, on, on uh, preaching the gospel. And we're going to invite us as a community to practice this together and to help each other as we think about how we preach the gospel in our particular cultural moment. Okay, so two things I want us to look at here today. One, uh, in terms of what we learn about the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea. One is we preach, Paul preached and we preach a a reasonable gospel. And then the second thing is we preach a a disruptive gospel, right? So those two things, all we're going to talk about today, reasonable gospel and a disruptive gospel. So let's start with reasonable. Verse 2 here in chapter 17, Paul goes into the synagogue as is his custom, it goes to the, his own people who he believes are going to be receptive to the good news of Jesus. Three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That word reasoned is going to be a key theme over the next several chapters. It's going to show up nine times in the second half of the book of Acts. That word literally means to uh, dialogue with. It, it Maybe your translation says debate or converse or even argue, right? But, but really, it's, it's a dialogue. It, there, there are formal ways that Paul does that through big public speeches, and then there are informal ways that happens. There's big public deliver, you know, speeches or sermons, and then there's like interpersonal back and forth kind of dialogue in small groups or one-on-one with people. Uh, it's a combination of speaking and listening, right? So it's not just one way, one directional communication. There's, there's a back and forth. Notice some of the language, <clears throat> some of the verbs, if you're an English person, that show up here along with reason, explaining right? That word explaining means to interpret, right? To open up reality to someone so that they can see their reality in light of the reality of who God is. That's what explaining is doing. Proving, right? Proving means to set alongside, to take a story, to set alongside facts and, and say, this is, this is reality. Let me, let me prove that. Let me listen to your questions and respond to those with answers, right? The the questions you're asking, not the questions I want you to know, but the questions you're asking, let me prove that to you. Um, He he talks about proclaiming. And then verse four, maybe, maybe the hardest one for us, we'll talk about in a minute, persuading. This is what evangelism does. Explaining, proving, proclaiming, persuading. Let me just give you a real simple definition of evangelism. It, it really comes down to this, it, what it means to reason with people about the good news of Jesus. It means getting eye to eye, face to face, knee to knee, and heart to heart with people that we love to help them make sense of reality, right? That is what truth is. Truth is just reality as it really is, right? A lie is unreality. Truth is reality. And so, Paul is essentially entering into their cultural frameworks, and he's saying, let me help you make sense of you in light of God. Let me help you make sense of your world, your community, your hopes and dreams, in light of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, uh, says this, he says, this is, uh, in this passage, you'll notice they talk about turning the world upside down. He says, reasoning with the gospel could be said to be turning the world right side up for people, right? It's saying, here's how you see reality. It's incomplete. Let me turn that and flip that and show you what's really true about the world. And just, I, I'm going to throw this on the screen. This is just kind of bonus material. We don't have time to go through this because we'll come back to this again and again. But I just want you to notice the flexibility of Paul as he's sharing the good news and the different ways that he does that in different kinds of cultural contexts, right? If you go back to, to chapter 14 in Lystra, um, Paul's talking to uneducated, rural, polytheistic pagans with literal physical statues, right? And he's going to confront them and enter into their culture, and he's going to talk about sin in a certain kind of way. He's going to emphasize a certain part of the gospel, and, and then he's going he's gonna to use different sources of authority. doesn't start with Scripture with people who don't know Scripture, And so that's different than what he does in Thessalonica with Jews and God-fears and what's different that we'll see next week in Athens. So you could take a picture of this, but my point is just that um, he has this ability to enter in with a kind of curiosity about the culture to reason with them and to show them from within their own like kind of cultural and, and spiritual logic how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they're really wanting and desiring and longing for. And so this is good gospel reasoning, right? Reasoning assumes that every culture, right? Like your family has a culture. The family you grew up in, there's a family culture. You as an individual have a personal culture, right? Our our, our neighborhood here in Midtown has a culture that's different. Like some of you live here and you grew up in like very rural parts of Indiana. You know, like been very, very, very different kinds of cultures, even within our own community. And if you're in like a pluralistic society, you've got multiple cultures kind of existing alongside each other and interacting with each other. But reasoning assumes that every culture has what you might call a baseline narrative, right? A vision of the good life, an explanation of where we came from, what's wrong with the world, and how we fix what's wrong. Whether you're a Christian or not, every culture has a narrative. And so good reasoning, good evangelism, biblically done, respects that narrative. It respects the dignity, the integrity, and the plausibility structure of that culture, right? So it can see that and affirm, you know what? This is partially true, right? God has placed some truth here in this culture. Like in the West, in, in America, we, we value human rights, right? We, we value as a society human rights. Well, where does that come from? That doesn't come from like natural law, right? That isn't like the old pagan societies. They didn't care about human rights, right? Like they had these strict hierarchies. We value human rights and we could say yes, but the way that you're going about that is wrong. It's partial. It's incomplete. And so the second thing is it doesn't just affirm those touch points. It subverts them, right? It subverts those baseline narratives. By using their own frameworks, Paul can say, man, you've enjoyed all of this abundance in Lystra. You pagans out here, you didn't even know that there was a creator God. You're worshiping idols, But you know what? God made the heavens and the earth. He made your abundance, your joy that you get from being a a farmer, that you get from enjoying this good meal, that comes from God. And let me show you how God and how Jesus, God and Jesus Christ, fulfills your deepest longings and cultural frameworks. Now, there's a lot of differences between those different contexts and how Paul does that, but in every encounter, there's, there's, there's one, you know, kind of, a, there's a lot of similarities, too. There's an intellectual challenge, right? Like, you are wrong. You're, the way you're thinking about this is wrong. There's an existential ta- challenge, like your desires and your longings are incomplete, right? And you're, you're seeking the right thing, but you're seeking it the wrong way, right? And there's an existential challenge to turn away from and have our desires kind of reordered, our loves reordered, and then put on Jesus. And so this is the call of of reasoning for us is to enter into, to understand, to be able to articulate in our workplaces, in our communities, with our families, with our children, in the larger world, to be able to understand our culture's longings and loves and loyalties and values, and then to be able to articulate within those frameworks in a way that subverts them The story of Jesus, and then says, hey, here's how that thing you're longing for finds its true fulfillment in the story, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the ideal. That's all we're talking about with evangelism, right? Now, here's the challenge for us. I think it's difficult for us to do this work because we have been formed in certain environments, particularly if you grew up in the church, but even if you didn't grow up in the church, to interact with culture in different kinds of ways. Uh, So James Hunter was a sociologist. He's a Christian, uh, works at UVA. He wrote a book a couple years ago called To Change the World. It's kind of a landmark book on uh, how to think about culture and how to think about like cultural, if you want to call it cultural engagement or whatever. And he said that historically in the last couple of centuries, American Christians have adopted uh, one of three postures towards culture. Like even like cultures, like in scare quotes sometimes, you know, like culture, like Bad culture. We tend to think of culture in certain kinds of ways and have assumptions about culture. But he said there's three basic postures. So I want you to think about the the environment in which you grew up. Think about how how people talked about culture, how they talked about different institutions, how they talked about the government, how they talked about secular world. These kinds of things, right? So there's three basic postures. One is he calls the defensive against. Right? We grew up in cultures where we are reacting to what we perceive to be the the secularizing of our institutions and of our culture, and we have the strong reaction. And so, in reaction to what's happening around us and this increasing feeling that we're under siege, we fight back. We seek to dominate. And in many ways, this is coming back again, right? Like, this is coming back again. This is what we see oftentimes in the culture wars, right? Like, I am against whatever culture that, I, you know, maybe, maybe you come from a more progressive culture and you're against conservative culture, you come from more conservative culture and you're against whatever these people are for, I'm against and it is, it is a zero sum battle, right? And we've got to dominate and win. There's no space for like kindness and civility and humility. And some of us were raised with this kind of anxiety in our homes and a kind of fear or paranoia about you know uh, culture. Second one he talks about is withdrawal. Some of us were raised in environments where we see some of those threats, but we don't fight it. We just kind of pull back into our own bubble. If you've heard of Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, right, that's a, been a really kind of best-selling book. That's, that's kind of a, a withdrawal stance. Um, and then thirdly, uh, compromise. So we, we see culture, and rather than fighting against it, and, and here's the dynamic I've noticed with a lot of younger people. Many of us grew up in homes where our parents were defensive against or our grandparents were defensive against. And in reaction to that, we come over here and we get assimilated, right? We, we, rather than fighting the culture wars, we, we allow culture to colonize us. If the fear of a generation ago was we're colonizing the world, the younger generation oftentimes finds themselves being colonized by the world, right? We're assimilated to the culture. We love the same things. We watch the same things. We have the same jokes. We have the same hatreds, right? Like we're indistinguishable. And you can see this in the polls, right? When they, when they poll like progressive Christians and conservative Christians, um, they pretty much track right along with the ideology of the parties, the political parties uh, that they engage with. And, and there's, a, there's a sort of compromise that's happening there. And we have to be aware of that, right? If... if Like, if if we're compromised, we cannot challenge a culture that we see nothing wrong with, right? Or that we see no confusion in. Let me throw this two-by-two up, because I I love a good two-by-two. This is uh, here, if you see on these two poles, uh, sensitivity on the one, uh, and then boldness on the other. Um, You know, again, each one of these may be appropriate in different seasons, but we're talking about, like, the dominant posture, how we kind of tend to act the majority of the time, If up and to the right is kind of an ambassador, right? Like we're understanding our culture, we're entering into our culture, we're learning from culture in order to reach and be bold within our culture. That's an ambassador. Down on the right is kind of this defensive against, right? Like high boldness, this is the person that loves conflict, always telling the truth, Facebook bombing, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, hey, I don't care what anybody thinks. Not super effective, right? As an evangelistic strategy, generally everybody kind of just like rolls their eyes. That's one approach on the, up and to the left is kind of what I'm talking about with compromise. So we're very sensitive to culture, but almost to a point where we don't have any boldness, we don't challenge, we don't speak the truth of Jesus. I mean, to be honest, like living, living here in Broaderville can be hard, right? Like to, to challenge the cultural narratives, right? Like I find myself at times being embarrassed. I find myself feeling humiliated. Like, do I really believe The stuff, like thousands of years old, do I really believe what the Bible has to say? And and it's easy just to compromise. It's easy just to be quiet and not make a fuss. You know, some of us are just like, dude, I'm an introvert. I, I don't want any controversy. This isn't about being an extrovert and introvert, right? This is about understanding how we're being formed and shaped and why we might have a hard time sharing the gospel. So James Hunter, in his book, argues for a fourth way. His fourth way is what he calls faithful presence. And I think that's what we see here in the life of Paul and Silas and Timothy and these missionaries, right? Faithful presence means I'm going to be present in my cultural context, in my neighborhood, in my workplace. I'm not going to withdraw. I'm not going to seek to coerce or manipulate or dominate. I'm going to be present, but I'm also going to be faithful. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to sell out. I'm going to try to figure out with other followers of Jesus what it looks like to be faithful in this particular time in place. And I just want to point out three little um, characteristics of faithful presence that we see here in this text that I think, uh, and in the rest of the cities, that I think we'd be wise to pay attention to. The first piece of that uh, is, so it's curiosity, compassion, and conviction. We have to hold those things like a three-stranded rope together. Curiosity, conviction, compassion, curiosity. We enter into the culture as a learner, right? We enter in with eyes open, hearts open, Seeing what God sees, feeling what, what with what God feels, trying to do what God would do if, if He were us. We just ask these questions, like, what are their hopes and dreams? Like, do you know what your neighbors' hopes and dreams are? Right? Do you know what your coworkers' fears, their longings are? Do you know what story they're living by in terms of their vision for the good life? Everybody has one. The question is, do we know what they are? Are we asking those questions? Which means that we have to resist what is so common in our cultural moment, lazy assumptions, right? Like we like to group people by, you know, class, race, ideology, and and we just are lazy in, in tropes and caricatures and cliches. But when you really get to know somebody, you realize, man, people are complex. What drives them, what motivates them? So I don't need to assume just because of their skin color or just because of their family background or just because of the way they vote that I understand them. I've got to take the time to ask those questions, Right? And that curiosity then allows me, like Paul, to be able to reason, to explain, to prove, to persuade in a way that makes sense to them and is not about me just projecting my issues on them, but is actually taking their questions seriously and giving honest answers to honest questions. That's the work of curiosity. So, man, that's so much harder than having like a prepackaged thing, right? Like if you maybe uh, became a Christian in college and you were part of a campus ministry, you know, you were, like, given, like, this is the way to do evangelism, these four points, here's the program, just go and sit down and kind of, bleh, like, vomit on somebody. And again, fine. Like, when you're 22, you don't know anything. You need, you need some help, right? So, like, I, it's like training wheels. But some of us never move beyond that, and we, we, we don't enter into this kind of back-and-forth reasoning and explaining and proving and embodying. Man, this is hard. This takes a lot of listening, right, instead of just talking, It takes a lot of reading and study and really trying to understand and wrestle with people's positions. It takes a lot of prayer, and it takes a ton of spirit-led imagination, right? And and so we have to be able to enter into their story, be curious, and find those bridges, right? Like, where can we affirm what's good and right and, like, God-given here? Because they're created in the image of God. I have to believe that even in the culture and in the world and in people that I disagree with fundamentally, that there is something redemptive going on there that I can kind of build a bridge into. And then we have to be able to identify out of curiosity what's confused, what's wrong, maybe even about this person's position that needs to be corrected or confronted. Right? We have to understand those narratives. I'm gonna put this on the screen just again, uh, more bonus track stuff. these are some of the, the narratives that we have to be conversant in if we're being curious in our cultural moment. Nobody's done this better, in my mind, than Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. Um, this is his list uh, in his great book, Making Sense of God, uh, just about some of the narratives that are partially true but yet distorted that we're going to have to interact with as we're curious in culture. We're going to come across these kinds of narratives that we have to be able to say, yes, but, and Jesus, Right? Yes, that's good desire, but the way we're going about that is not bringing about life and joy and freedom. So there's curiosity, there's compassion, right? Paul is not just out to win arguments, he's out to win people, right? Like how many of us in our social media presence, in our debating and arguing, we're trying to win an argument. We're not trying to win people. We want to be right, and you can be right and lose people. Paul says in Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart, for I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Do we feel that way about the people that we're sharing Jesus with? compassion. And then finally, conviction, right? We're trying to persuade. We want to persuade. Paul had this unquenchable passion to get into people's hearts, into their stories, into their imagination, into their inner world to help persuade them that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy their deepest longings, their deepest, deepest loves, their deepest Desires. Paul wanted them to see that, that he had this conviction, right? That it's not just true, it's not just right. It's good and it's beautiful. You will live this way. You will experience the very beauty and life-giving nature of the good news of the kingdom of God, right? And and like that's what we do all the time when we love something. Right? Like, I'm not telling you, you guys are some of the most evangelistic people I've ever been around, right? And I, like, in, like Midtown. People are passionate. When you love something, you will talk about it all the time. You will persuade people all the time to try to do your thing, right? Like, when you, I mean, you always know when somebody gets into a new hobby, just start talking about it. I mean, I I love hearing stories about people cycling in our church. They're fanatical about it, like the right kind of spandex and the right kind of bike. And it's like, if you don't do this, you're not like a Christian. And I mean, the passion, right? The zeal, the health benefits, all that stuff. Um, I've, I've heard more than I ever want to know about pelvic floors, and people get passionate about pelvic floors and raising their... I'm like, I don't even know what that is. It sounds gross, but okay, great. You know, like... People get all into their oils, and it's like, ah, oh, this is going to light, you know, like their whole house oh, smells, you know, just, it's, when you're passionate about something, you just share it because you love, and yet when it comes to Jesus, it's like, uh, 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 I don't know, let me, let me reposition, let me nuance, let me caveat, you know, maybe. There's a great, um, I'm going to introduce, I'm going to give you a cross-cultural experience real fast, uh, and introduce some of you to the beauty and the wisdom of an ancient art form called the Poetry Slam. Anybody familiar with the Poetry Slam? This is like an art form from the late 90s, early 2000s. And the high priest of this uh, is probably Taylor Molly. Some of you guys may have watched Taylor Molly on YouTube. He has a fantastic, and and this really captures the spirit of the age, I think in a lot of ways. Uh, His poet, this uh, piece of poetry was called Totally Like Whatever You Know. And let me just read this to you, and I'm going to not even come close to doing this right, but I want to read it to you because it's so well said, and I think it's how many of us feel when it comes to persuading people about the gospel of Jesus. He says, in case you hadn't noticed, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about? Question mark. Or believe strongly in what you're saying? Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows have been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences. Even when those sentences aren't like questions, you know? Declarative sentences, so-called, because they used to like declare things to be true, okay? As opposed to other things are like totally, you know, not, have been infected by a totally hip and tragically cool interrogative tone, you know? Like don't think I'm uncool just because I've noticed this. This is just like the word on the street, you know? It's like what I've heard. I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions, okay? I'm just inviting you to join me in my uncertainty. What has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been like chopped down with the rest of the rainforest? Or do we have like nothing to say? Has society become so like totally, I mean absolutely, you know, that we've just gotten to the point where it's just like whatever, and so, actually, our disarticulationness is just a clever sort of thing to disguise the fact that we've become the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since, you know, a long, long time ago. <laughs> he closes like this. I entreat you. I implore you. I exhort you. I challenge you to speak with conviction, to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you believe it. Because contrary to the wisdom of the bumper sticker, it is not enough these days to simply question authority, you have to speak with it too. And Taylor Molley is no follower of Jesus that I know of, but he speaks a profound truth about our reticence to be persuasive, to convict, to be convictional, and to believe that we actually have something to offer the world in terms of good news, I want to encourage us as we're thinking and wrestling with, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you grew up in the church, or maybe you are a Christian, but man, we're just constantly being bombarded with different persuasive messages. Like our world is so evangelistic, right? We are always trying to persuade people about our politics, our sexual, our view of race, uh, you know, racial justice stuff. Like we're always being confronted with messages. And, and I just want to point you to the Bereans. As a model for how we respond to these invitations. Verse 10 As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, and upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people were here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I just want to encourage us to be like the Bereans, to examine the scriptures to see if these things are true. There's so many messages coming at us from people who claim the name of Jesus, but have we actually taken the time to read the scriptures for ourselves? For those of us who may be saying no to Jesus, are we saying no to Jesus and his way as it's articulated in scripture, or are we just rejecting a sort of cultural Christianity? Right, and as Christians, man, we better make sure we're being formed by the word of God, by scripture, more than we are by podcasts, more than we are by cultural influencers, more than we are, because I'm just amazed how many of us are believing things and allowing ourselves to be persuaded by voices that are not actually preaching truth, but distortions of truth in the name of Jesus. So we have this gospel that is reasonable, and, and we're invited to reason with people, to share the good news, to love them enough, to be curious about where they're coming from, to enter into their space with compassion, and then with conviction, and I don't mean mean, I don't mean cruel, I don't mean arrogant, I don't mean being that guy. I'm just saying with humility, but with conviction and firmness, say, this is the good news of Jesus. I believe this is good news for the whole world. This is good news that turns the world upside down, and I hope that you will come to believe that too and then it'll change your life. And then just notice quickly here what happens when we preach that kind of gospel. And I just want to do a little bit here because we're going to come back to this on blast in, Exodus, in, uh, in Ephesus, in chapter 19. But I just want us to notice that when we preach the gospel, it does create conflict. It's unavoidable. It creates conflict. Notice the middle of our passage here. And, and just to be honest, I don't love talking about this stuff. And you're just like, oh, it's always, no, this, it's just here. Got to deal with it. I'm, t- I'm not going to skip over it. Verse five, the Jews became jealous. They brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged them, Jason and some of the brothers, before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason Has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So, what we see here in this passage, the response to the good news of Jesus as the king and the Messiah of the world, is this fusion of political and religious resistance to the gospel. Right, the Jewish leaders, angry by the response to the good news, hire professional instigators to start a riot. Right, a mob riot. This is the same word used here, riot, that's used of the crowd that surrounded Jesus, shouting, "Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him!" And the charge from these religious leaders. So here it's the Jews in Ephesus. It's going to be just uh, pagans. Right, here it's the Jews. And they, they say, these men who've turned the world upside down, that, that word there, turn the world upside down, that phrase is, is basically a word that just means rebellion or revolution. It's used in Acts chapter 21 to talk about an Egyptian terrorist who, who led a revolution against Rome. That's, that's, that's actually right. That's actually exactly what's happening. They're turning the world upside down. There's an open conflict that the gospel creates. And notice what they say. They're turning the world upside down. They're challenging allegiances, loyalties, values. This isn't just something that happens in the eternal by and by. This is something that has real implications for here and now in our lives. They're turning the world upside down, saying that there is another king, not Caesar, but Jesus. And this is the heart of what I just want us to see here is this fusion, right? They make no distinction between the religious and the political, as we oftentimes do, because there really is no distinction between the religious and the political in our world. This this idea that Caesar is king was more than just a political slogan, right? Caesar claimed to be Lord and Savior, the same words in the Greek that we use of Jesus, kurios, and the king, the Baselin, uh, Baselus, the, the king, he's, he's lord, he's king, the emperor claimed to be son of God, he was the bearer of good news, the same word euangelion, the good news, the pox romana, the peace of God. He brings salvation to the world if we will trust in him. It's the same word pistis, the emperor would use, to be loyal to him, to put our faith in him, to trust in him as the one who defines reality. This was not just a political slogan. This was a political and religious ideology a worldview, a way of life. It was a propaganda that was spread through philosophy, through art, through literature, through cultural institutions. This was the air you breathe. To be a good Roman citizen was to be able to say, Caesar is ultimate reality. And so what's exposed here is this kind of alliance that these Jewish leaders have with that system and that way of thinking. Right, in exchange for peace, in exchange for them not being harassed and violently rounded up and killed and assaulted, they said, "Okay, we'll give Caesar our allegiance. We'll say he's king. We'll say he's lord. We'll do his bidding." And, and, and there's this kind of alliance. And so when when Paul and his disciples begin to show up and say, "No, no, no! Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the King. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is Son of God." Jesus is the one who brings salvation. Jesus brings peace, not the peace of Rome. He brings the peace of God, shalom. Jesus is the one who brings justice into the world, not the Roman jurisprudence system. Like, that's what gets them in trouble, right? Like, they get it. The Jews get it. This is going to be bad for us. This is going to be bad for us because we have put our hope in Caesar to be our security and our protection, and now they're saying there's another king. See, what got Paul in trouble is not saying Jesus died and rose from the dead and you'll go to heaven when you die if you believe in him. Rome, Rome, like a polytheistic, pluralistic, tolerant religious culture, no problem. You can have your Jesus. You can have your local gods, Jews. You can have your Yahweh. That's no problem. What got Paul in trouble was when he said Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. When Paul began to go up against that ideology and to say that we need to be loyal to Jesus over Caesar man, that begins to expose this, these competing loyalties and loves. And we see that, like, that's what the gospel does, right? If we've not been challenged like that, if that's not turning us upside down in terms of the way we approach our spirituality, the way we approach our life in the world, the way we approach our politics, we don't understand the gospel, Right? Because Jesus didn't come just to be our personal therapist, to be a buddy, to be an executive assistant, to advance our agenda or our political ideology in the world, or to be a philosopher only, or just to be another one of the local deities. He claimed to be king of the world. He claimed to bl- bring a political protest into the world. They are protesting here, Polit- politics. And while we don't live under kings now... Our society is still ruled by a pantheon of competing ideologies that traffic in the fusion of religion and politics, right? Like all religions have a political dimension to them, political reality to them, and all politics have a religious dimension to them. That's why there's so much fervor and angst around politics, and that's always how it's been, right? We've tried to separate them, but you just can't. Religion is political, and political ideologies always take on a religious character, right? Every political ideology has an alternative to the gospel story built into it right? This is what's how we were created, this is what's wrong with the world, and this is how we fix what's broken in the world. And it's always a partial truth, right? An ideology is kind of a form of idolatry. It is idolatry, right? it, it isolates one particular function of creation and elevates it to the level of God and says, now, let's figure out how to fix this with human power and human strategy and human means. That's the essence of idolatry, And Paul and his disciples are confronting that, exposing that allegiance between these Jewish leaders and Rome, and all of a sudden, they begin to realize, oh my gosh, like, this is going to go bad for us. And, And that's the same thing that will happen to us if we are preaching the true gospel now, right? Like, the gospel is inherently political, right? It involves a king who brings a kingdom, into this world with a new government, new constitution, new laws. That king, the Bible says one day, will judge all human rulers, all emperors, Caesar Augustus, President Biden, President Trump, right? He will bring to account all human authorities. They will stand before him and give an account for how they governed and how they led. He will judge the living and the dead. And if we understand that, then that disrupts our religious political loyalties. It upends and exposes and confronts our commitments to all of these false ideologies. Because again, Jesus doesn't come to advance Brandon's agenda in the world. He doesn't come to advance the GOP or the Democratic Party's agenda in the world. He comes to advance his agenda in the world. And so the invitation here is to surrender to Jesus as our king right, to give our greatest allegiance to Jesus, right? I could put these up, I'll put these up here on the screen. Like there are all kinds of ideologies competing for our affections every day, working to recruit our imagination. We don't think of them as ideologies, but they are. If you want to read more about this, my, one of my favorite books on kind of political theology and this ideology, idolatry, is a, book, a man named David Koizis called Political Visions and Illusions. And here's some of the categories that he lays out, some of the reigning ideologies of our day. And he says, each one of these are ideologies, they're isms, and they have a gospel story that they're trying to tell about reality, and each of them has partial truths that we see but also has things that are wrong in terms of their prescription, and so the gospel comes in and disrupts and says, hey, if you're a Christian, you cannot be following any ism in terms of your great allegiance and loyalty. You should not be following wholeheartedly conservatism or progressivism, right? You shouldn't be following socialism or you know, democracy, nationalism, like, like he says, you just can't do that, you can't give it your greatest allegiance and loyalty and trust. The gospel comes to disrupt those allegiances and to reorient our loyalty to Jesus. Now, that may lead us to partner. That may lead us to, you know, we, we don't withdraw from the world. But we also say, no, you don't, you don't get my heart. And there's going to be aspects. I mean, just take the conservative progressive thing. That's the most obvious one, right? It's, which is the dumbest binary ever, right? Because what it means to be a conservative, like you ask 10 people, 10 different things, be a progressive. But let's just take that for a second, right? Like as Christians, should be a conservative or progressive? Yes, there are things that you should conserve. As Christians, we're conserving scripture, truth, you know, ancient doctrine, right? There's things that we conserve, but there's also things that we're progressing, right? There's things that we believe in that are wrong in the world that need to be upended, because, not because we're following Karl Marx or whatever the latest, like, theory is, because the Bible says God is a God of justice and righteousness and truth. And so it leads us to sometimes protest and sometimes pursue alternative ways of being in the world. That's what it means to be a Christian, to say my allegiance is to Jesus. And where that overlaps with your agenda, yeah, we might build a partner. Where it doesn't, hey man, I'm gonna be loud, and I'm gonna be telling you, and I'm not gonna participate in that because I'm gonna be a person of integrity. And so all of that just to say That that's what it means to surrender to Jesus. That no Caesar, no empire, no president, no party, no ideology, no cultural institution has the title to our heart except for Jesus. And anything that dominates our loyalty, our time, our attention, our energy, anything that makes us angry in a way that we shouldn't be getting angry, that makes us depressed in a way we shouldn't be getting depressed because we are followers of Jesus, man, It's a great opportunity for us to look inside and say, man, where are my true allegiances? Where are my true commitments? Where are my loyalties? Our lives as believers fall in the way of Jesus, bring us into tension with the dominant values, practices, and loves of other empires. And sometimes that means we enter into controversy, conflict, and suffering. And again, I'll just kind of close with that. The gospel will create conflict. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how reasonable you are doesn't matter how winsome you are. Your life, just by the very nature of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is about, will bring you into conflict with other people. If you are living a life where there is no conflict in the spheres in which you're running, you need to ask yourself, am I really living the way of Jesus? That doesn't mean you love conflict, that doesn't mean you seek out, some of us court conflict in all kinds of weird ways as Christians and then we kind of like mar- have like a martyr complex. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying you love it, but I'm saying it should be happening if you're being faithful to Jesus. And one of the things we learn in Acts is that we, we better make sure we're offending people for the right reasons. Some of us offend people because we're jerks and just not nice and cruel and unkind and reactive and that's not what I'm talking about either, Right? But we do know that when we preach the gospel, it's going to challenge. It's going to turn the world upside down. And so as we go to communion here, I just want to invite us to put away our stuff and just ask those questions, right? Like this is, this is hard. These are hard messages. When we get into the book of Acts and we see the true message of the gospel, that Jesus the Messiah has come into this world, that he's challenging the kingdoms of this world with his own kingdom, He entered into our life to confront us and to say, hey, you're wrong. But he enters into our lives, walks our roads, becomes one of us, suffers, right? Like that's how the kingdom of God comes. It comes through suffering love, not through domination, coercion, or violence. He enters in and he preaches and he lives the very love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The question is, are we allowing that to overturn our lives? Are we allowing that to upset our lives, to turn our world upside down, right? Surrendering to that message will challenge everything that you think you know about what it means to be human. It will take all of your loves and reorder them to Jesus. It will take all of your loyalties, and it will fix them first and foremost on Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the good news, is that that's why God's come. And as we allow our lives to be turned upside down, we then are sharing that good news with other people. So let me just pray for us. We'll take some time to reflect on our own stories, to meet Jesus here in communion, to be reminded as we come to the table that this is what we celebrate in communion, right? That Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we should have died, that he rose again from the dead, and that he is with us and for us in this work. And so we come to celebrate, to take his body, his blood, to be empowered once again to be reminded that he's with us on this journey, Father, we thank you for this message, this good news of Jesus that liberates us, that sets us free, that brings us into a kingdom that can't be shaken. God, I pray that that would just give us a sense of confidence, humble confidence, but confidence, that you are at work transforming us, that we have experienced this good news in our own lives. And God, this is the best news in the world that we get to be a part of your kingdom. That regardless of our background, regardless of our race, class, gender, sexuality, regardless of our, the, all the barriers that we experience in, in life with you, God, you have come to us, you have rescued us, you have removed all of those, you've forgiven us of our sin, and you give us new life in you, and you teach us what it means to be your disciples. And that offers for everyone all the time, and it's free, and it's full. And so God, we just want to receive that again today as great news, and then we want to be so transformed and so convinced and persuaded in our own hearts that we share that with those around us this week as we go out into the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.